This is William Friedkin speaking. I'm the director of The French Connection, and for the next hour and 40 minutes, if you've tuned to this track, I'll be babbling on about how we made the film, certain technical aspects of it, as well as how it both contrasts and follows the actual case upon which it's based. The French Connection is based on an actual case that took place in New York City during the 1960s. It involved a great many um, different branches of law enforcement, uh, but in making the film, which is essentially an impression of that case, we reduced the number of law enforcement groups or agencies to two. The New York Narcotics Bureau, which no longer exists, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which also no longer exists. But the two principal characters, Popeye Doyle and Buddy Russo, are based on Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso, who were vitally involved on behalf of the New York City Narcotics Bureau in breaking the case. The prologue in Marseille, uh, this is actually Marseille, and this is where the case began. This gentleman walking across the street, eating a little slice of pizza there, is an undercover French detective who has come on the tail of um, the man on the right, whose name is Alain Charnier, who was actually a Corsican, but who was heavily involved in the drug trade in Marseille. And Marseille always has been a center for um, refining uh, heroin. And there are factories all over the city where the heroin is refined. And Chagnier was involved in shipping the heroin in unusual ways to the United States and elsewhere. And this undercover detective uh, was following him and just uh, trying to get a profile on him when he saw that um, Lincoln, an American Lincoln automobile um, that Chagnier was using in and around the streets of Marseille, and that caught his attention. And in this particular scene, after following Chagnier all day, um, most of the day, he's on his way home. He lives himself uh, somewhere in the inner city of Marseille, like most uh, French people, he buys himself a baguette and uh, he's on his way home for an evening of relaxation until he has to pick up the trail again in the morning. The Exorcist Iraq prologue gives you the same kind of mood setting. It also introduces this character, the fellow who is Chagnier's hitman, and his name is Nicoli in the film, played by Marcel Bazoufi, who is no longer with us, but he was a great actor. He was also in the film Z. You see in the first scene that Nicoli is really a very heavy killer. And the action then switches to Brooklyn, New York, where uh, detectives Doyle and Russo are working undercover. This is Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, Russo, played by Roy Scheider. They're working undercover, as Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso actually did, um, 
in trying to spot the pass of narcotics which just occurred, if you look carefully, between two men in that bar. And at the moment when uh, Doyle observed uh, the narcotics being passed from one person to another, he rang his Santa Claus bell and Russo goes into the bar to try and retrieve the narcotics. Everyone in this scene, by the way, is an undercover narcotics detective. And this is the technique that uh, Egan and Grasso used. They would go into uh, a very tough bar in an inner city neighborhood, and they just raise hell and obsessively go after anyone who was their suspect. This was the kind of thing that occurred daily in their, in their lives as narcotics detectives. A lot of the editing developed in the cutting room afterwards. There is sort of an elliptical style to the editing in that you're not really sure where the next cut is coming from and certainly neither the shots nor the editing of the shots fall into any conventional patterns. I was very much influenced in the making of this film by two films, both French. One was Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Breathless, and the other was a film made a number of years later by Costa Gavras called Z. And the documentary realism that Costa Gavras achieved in Z was very influential to me when I went out to shoot this picture. We built no sets. Everything is shot on actual locations, very often the locations where they occurred, where the original story occurred. The two cops in roughing up the suspect would, of course, play good cop, bad cop, which was fairly new technique in those days. The Roy Scheider character, Buddy Russo, would always ask the suspect specific questions about specific things, while the Eddie Egan or Popeye Doyle character would ask him non sequiturs, like if he had ever sat down on the edge of the bed and picked his feet. And so the suspect was caught in the middle between these two techniques. He was more afraid to answer <laughs> Doyle's nonsensical questions than Russo's questions that made sense, because he didn't know really how much trouble he was in. Poughkeepsie wants to talk to you. You ever been to Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? Hey, man, come on, give me a break. Pick your feet in Poughkeepsie was a phrase Eddie Egan used on almost every suspect he ever interrogated just to unsettle them. Uh, it's just a non sequitur to unsettle someone, but it's asked very straight and, and uh, forcefully. And it's a very hard question to answer, as you might imagine. And so it would cause the suspect to freeze up and wonder if he had in fact done something in Poughkeepsie that he uh, should be arrested for. And now the action switches back to Marseille where we introduce Charnier as a owner of a boatyard who's talking about expanding his boatyard and putting in more ships. This is the harbor in Marseille. And Charnier, of course, is uh, a shipyard owner and uh, a legitimate businessman. Heroin is on the side. You see here again the introduction of the Lincoln car. 
Fernando Rey, who plays Charnier, was really not the first actor of our choice. I told the casting director I wanted the actor who always worked with Louis Bunuel and who was in Belle de Jour. And so the casting director went out and said, well, his name is Fernando Rey, and um, uh, he's available. And I said, wonderful, let's hire him. And when Fernando Rey came uh, to New York for the first time to do the film, I saw him and I realized, yes, I'd seen him in Bunuel films, but he wasn't the actor I was looking for. It was the wrong guy. And so we later found out that day that the actor we were looking for was Francisco Rabal. And it turned out that Rabal was not available and didn't speak a word of English. So Fernando Rey was cast um, by accident in the film. He wasn't uh, the man I had in mind initially at all. And this becomes a question of how the movie God takes care of you and very often brings you the right person in the cast, whether you um, <laughs> had planned it or not. He turned out to be wonderful, but he looked nothing like the character that he was based on, who was a very rough, uh, unsophisticated Corsican. And of course, Ray is all suave sophistication and charm. And this worked well for the film because Doyle, played by Hackman, is just the opposite. And that's really the theme of the film, the thin line between the policeman and the criminal. The cop who has the badge is basically an obsessive, brutalizing racist. And the narcotics smuggler is a gourmet. He dresses well. He loves his wife. He's in every um, imaginable way a charming human being. And so I was constantly throughout the film trying to play that contrast and the thin line between them, which very often crossed over. Need a little help there? You don't get any. How the hell did I know he had a knife? Never trust a nigger. He could have been white. Never trust anyone. Going sick? No. Huh, are you going sick? No. We said we pop by down the shade for a half hour, so I'll have Jimmy, a couple of drinks. For Christ's sake, I'm beat. I'm going to go. All right, all right, all right. One drink. Drink this. Whip it out. <laughs> this relationship between Egan and Grasso that you see in this sequence, the wonderful uh, Mutt and Jeff quality that they had, Egan being a big, bluff, tough, hail fellow, well-met, uh, whose nickname was Popeye because he always had his eyes open for uh, a criminal suspect, was in contrast to his partner, Sonny Grasso, who was much darker and, and uh, more morose and serious, and his nickname was Cloudy. So the two of them were called Popeye and Cloudy. And I thought, this is a really interesting combination. And when I met them and actually went out with them on some of the narcotics busts that they had uh, pulled off, I could see that they were not only the two most effective cops in New York, but they were having a lot of fun doing this. And the case started in this way. They were off duty, and they literally spotted a guy in a nightclub. It was actually the Copacabana in New York. They spotted a guy in a nightclub who was spending a lot of money and hanging out with known gangsters and gamblers and narcotics dealers. But they didn't recognize the young guy who seemed to be the king of the big spenders. 
And it was their curiosity about him, just the idle curiosity about what this guy was doing in that bar with those well-known gangsters that kicked off this case. Most of the camera work it was done, as I say, on actual locations, not sets, with very low light levels. In the case of this scene, of course, the levels are higher because you're in a nightclub. But throughout, the film is done with handheld cameras. You can see the shakiness sometimes, but it has a, a very similitude or a sense of reality, as though the cameras just happened upon the scene. I had worked in documentary film for years, and I had learned how to achieve an induced documentary style. And The French Connection was the first fiction film where I had a chance to try that out. Had a wonderful operator, too, named Ricky Bravo, who operated the camera, who had photographed the Cuban Revolution right at Castro's side and was up in the Sierra Maestre Mountains with Castro and um, shot the whole revolution handheld, and, and then he later became disillusioned and defected to this country. He was absolutely brilliant. This is a group called the Three Degrees that later became very well known as a result of their appearance here in the French Connection. But as I say, the case started as a hunch. Two really great New York cops who were totally dedicated, even while off-duty, noticed that there was somebody spending a lot of money in a nightclub, as you see right here, and they didn't know anything about him. And they usually had a line on all of the, uh, the so-called big-time spenders who were working illegally or laundering money. So they decided to follow him home and see where the hell he lived. They did this all on spec, as I say. They were not assigned to this case. They sort of stumbled into it through their obsessiveness. What for? You want to play hide the salami with this old lady? Yeah. <laughs> what I tried to do in that sequence was take out the actual sound of the band and the singers at one point and transition the sound into Doyle's mind, into his mind's eye, where he's not at a certain point hearing the music anymore. He's hearing warning bells go off in his head. Uh, again, all instinctive, which is what made a great cop his instinct. And I tried to capture that by taking the sound as subjective as I could at a certain point, and getting inside of his brain, if you will. They sat outside the nightclub and waited for him to come out, and then they followed him home. They had a, a very strange trip that first night. Most of it is very small uh, clip lights and available light, not the usual array of massive arc lights or brutes that you usually see on location. And so it's, some of it's very dark because it isn't overlit. Uh, some of it's very hard to see, as a matter of fact, because it's natural lighting. Uh, yeah, say goodbye. Come on. 
What's he got now? Hudson Terraplane, that's what he got. No, no. Okay. When Hackman and Scheider toss this hat in the back seat of the car that they're in, it's a signal to other on-duty policemen that they're on duty. The white straw hat in the back of the car is an indication throughout the city that an undercover officer is on duty. And so they followed him from the Copacabana through the downtown New York, down to the Lower East Side to a restaurant called Ratner's, and they waited until very early in the morning when the guy they were following, who is called Sal Boca, but whose real name was Patsy Fuca, he's Sal Boca in the film, played by Tony Lobianco, and his wife, Angie, they come out of this uh, 24-hour deli, and they get into their LTD and start driving home with Doyle and Russo on their tail. What I wanted to do was a sort of a modern-day version of Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty. That, that, that's really the model. It's cat and mouse. Of course, Doyle, played by Hackman, is the cat, and Charnier is the mouse, but the mouse often has the last word. When he was followed down here to the Lower East Side, we see that Sal Boca has a briefcase with him when he goes into a particular address, but when he comes out, He's left the briefcase, and that indicates that in street parlance, he's made a drop, more than likely a narcotics drop. And so now, for these two cops on surveillance, the plot is beginning to thicken, and they keep following him through the early morning hours over the Brooklyn Bridge and into Brooklyn. I never storyboard anything. I just, I look at the locations and I try to work out in my mind's eye and with the help of the director of photography and the operator and other people, the best way to shoot a scene. And we work it out usually on a location scout well in advance. And then we go out and just shoot it that way. In this case here, you can see that Sal and Angie are about to exchange cars they change cars and get into another car, which was a way of trying to elude being followed. So they were taking the precaution of not being followed without knowing that in fact they were being followed to a location in Brooklyn where they got out and went into what turned out to be a candy store. We see that Sal has in the trunk of this car, which is probably his, his car, a stack of Sunday morning newspapers that he's taking into his candy store. They expected uh, the trunk to open and a whole bunch of uh, narcotics to be visible, but it was just two stacks of newspapers that were brought into Sal and Angie's um, 
Italian delicatessen and restaurant. But he was really into the rackets. And he was trying to set up this big narcotics deal. He was the guy that was going to be the point man for Mr. Chagnier's heroin. As it turned out, in the actual case, $32 million worth of uncut heroin. This location is the very famous Chateau d'If. This is the place where the Count of Monte Cristo was imprisoned in the famous novel by uh, Alexander Dumas. And it has been for many years deserted, sort of like San Quentin. You can go there and uh, get on a conducted tour. Chinet picks up from the water something called a moule, uh, which is uh, a mussel that actually hatches in the waters there on the Chateau d'If, and it's edible. It's quite delicious, like a little uh, mussel. Of course, the Chateau and this little island is very remote. It's off the coast of Marseille, and not a lot of people actually do go there. There aren't a lot of visitors there. It's very hard to follow somebody there. You'd be seen. And so Charnier goes there to... Uh, have meetings with various people. And in this case, he's meeting his henchman, Nicoli, and he's asking him how it went. And what he's referring to is the fact that Nicoli has killed the undercover policeman that was following them in the first scene. And now they're about to have a meeting with the fellow who um, is playing a character based on an actual TV personality named Jacques Angelvan. And Jacques Angelvan, which was the real name of this character, uh, who we called Devereaux in the film, uh, he was a big television star in France. He was like Johnny Carson. He had his own late-night show, but he could also go around and do various little film bits for his show. And uh, Chagnier had worked out an arrangement with Devereaux here, who's played by Frederick de Pasquale. When he goes to America, ostensibly to do a documentary for his French television show, if he would take with him the Lincoln that you have seen earlier take the Lincoln automobile to New York, and of course, the automobile is what contains the $32 million worth of uncut heroin. This is a surveillance scene where, for weeks, Doyle and Russo surveilled Sal and Angie, just monitoring their activities and the various characters that were going in and out of their restaurant candy store. Trying to hold up Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight. He could have got two and a half to five, but Tiffany's wouldn't prosecute. Also, downtown, they're pretty sure he pulled off a contract on a guy named DeMarco. And by his old lady. Her name's Angie. She's a fast filly. 
What they saw was just the day-to-day -day activities and operations of two people who were working very hard, running a little cafe and a newspaper and candy joint. Uh, but by now, we know that after work, uh, they go out and uh, they do numbers. I mean, Sal was a very ambitious guy. That's his brother, Lou, who uh, works as a trainee at the garbage depot on Ward's Island. And he, he starts to figure very importantly in the story. Uh, New Jersey plates, RWN264. I know that one cat. We saw him outside the... I slip in the other day. Listen, I want to get a blouse like that for my... Doyle and Russo set up in a factory across the street from the candy store where they were given permission to survey this couple. And they actually went into the cafe and struck up conversations with them, got to know them, became very friendly with them so they could more closely observe the operation, which, as you can see, is a very cloak and dagger for a, a little uh, coffee and sandwich shop. Third time he come here this week. Mm -hmm. You got anything on this building? The building's clean. I checked it. We never really had a screenplay, frankly. I had been on this film so long that for months I knew all the dialogue that Egan and Grasso used. I knew the case inside out. I never actually read the book about it by Robin Moore, although the film is based on that book. I just really put the film together from my impressions of the case and of the people. Uh, I actually went out with Egan and Grasso on busts, on, on heroin busts. They took me to uh, various places uh, where they knew people were selling or using heroin. I would actually go in on some of the bar raids with them that they did. And so I knew what they were doing very well. I could never communicate it to a writer. Uh, who did not have the same sensibility about it as I did. This scene coming up is a typical uh, way that Egan and Grasso would bust into a bar uh, almost anywhere in the city and go in and raid the bar and uh, roust all the people in the bar and uh, seize narcotics. But the scene is also a setup for the fact that they have informants and uh, in addition to uh, seizing all the narcotics that's in this bar, they actually use it as a, as a place to, to uh, meet their informants. Hey, you dropped that? Pick it up. Pick it up! Come on, move! Gene, who is brilliant in the film, of course, had a tough time initially getting into this role because he's anything but uh, a brutal racist and that's really what it appears Eddie Egan was although the fact is that he was a great cop and a lot of this was an act a lot of, the, of, of what Egan did was bravado uh, in order to seize control and make sure that all of these suspects most of them dealers uh, and often users of heavy drugs uh, would do what he told them to do and so he, he didn't come in there like a college professor. He came in there, you know, like um, uh, a whirlwind. And uh, he was very feared on the street during the late 60s and until the mid-70s when he retired. I've seen him do this many times. 
seize all these drugs and then take whatever was on the bar and make a cocktail out of it and then just leave it there. And to a lot of people, all that stuff that's in that mush of a shake there is their bread and butter and, and often what's keeping them afloat during the day. They used to pick guys out of the line there and simply, uh, after they'd seize weapons or narcotics from them, they'd make them go stand in the phone booth in the bar and lock themselves in the phone booth until a squad car was called to pick them up and take them to jail. Smart ass, you drop something, pick it up. Want the hand broken? Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso were on the set at all times, and they would watch the action as I would. And if something looked wrong to them, if Hackman didn't frisk a character properly or didn't talk to him right, Eddie would come to me and, and make some suggestions, and I would then clean it up so that it was much more authentic to the way those cops worked. Eddie was very happy to be portrayed as the tough cop that he was, the guy who owned the streets. This is, as I was talking earlier, um, a character played by a wonderful New York actor named Al Fan, who plays the informant, who first appears to be giving them lip and actually getting physical with Hackman. But in fact, they're doing this as a kind of a show to get into the men's room and lock themselves in where they can have a private conversation about what sort of narcotics might be coming into the city. This informant, played by Al Fan, is a guy who knows what's happening in the narcotics trade, and from time to time they would meet like this, and he would tip off Eddie Egan, or as we call him, Popeye Doyle, as to the fact that shipments were coming in and from where. I always found these cops to be very, very funny in the way they carried out their duties, um, sometimes intentionally funny. I must say that it wasn't funny if you were on the other side. If you were doing something wrong, you had a lot to fear from these guys, but just watching them, they very often in their line of chatter and in their style, they were doing a takeoff on tough cops. And uh, it was almost a satire. And they really enjoyed the browbeating that they gave to uh, the suspects that they encountered. The man in the foreground here is Eddie Egan. He is the character that Gene Hackman's playing in the scene. This is the real cop who was behind the French Connection case. And he's playing uh, a character here called Simonson, who was really the lieutenant in charge of the Narcotics Bureau. Doyle and Russo work for Simonson. They take their assignments from him, but of course, as you saw earlier, they do a lot of freelancing and go off on their own. And so you have the unusual situation here of Egan playing a character who is his own boss, and he's being pretty hard on the character who's playing him. 
what Egan is doing here is reflecting the kind of treatment that he was getting from his bosses. This scene, for example, I did this quite often. I wanted a kind of a documentary feel to it. So I rehearsed it without any crew around. And then uh, once I felt it was set, then I would let the camera operator, Ricky Bravo, come in. Of course, Owen Roisman had already lit the set. But Ricky, the cameraman, didn't know where the actors were going to go. He would have to, he was on a long lens here, and he would simply have to follow the people or frame a shot as best he could without it being preset. And that's what gives the film a strong documentary flavor when the camera crew doesn't really know where the people are going to be or where they're going to go. They just have to follow them around. In this case, you have a, a three-shot and a long shot, but the cameraman himself made the decision as to whether to follow somebody or stay with somebody else. Same is true with a scene like this. I would simply set it up. This is the scene where Devereaux is coming to the United States, to New York. He's a famous French television personality, and he's being interviewed by the New York press uh, in sort of a superficial way. And we shot this documentary style on the docks. And of course, the reason this scene is taking place, as superficial as it seems, is it is setting up the fact that Devereaux has in fact agreed to transport this Lincoln automobile that's coming out of the hold of the boat now into the United States. And the automobile license plate number 18LU13, which is a French license plate, is holding $32 million worth of uncut heroin. Devereaux always claimed, as I say, his real name was Jacques Angelvan, and he always claimed that he didn't know he was being set up. His daughter, to this day, says that he was framed and didn't know he was being set up. He was doing a favor for a friend. He got paid for it, but he didn't ask any questions. He just allowed the car to travel with him from Marseille, France, to Brooklyn, New York, and uh, brought the car into the country, and then he was supposed to be finished with it. But there's an open question as to whether he knew or didn't know what he was transporting. In this particular scene, uh, Simonson introduces a character called Bill Mulderig here, played by Bill Hickman, who is also our stunt captain. And Mulderig plays a guy whose real name was Frank Waters, he was a Federal Bureau of Narcotics agent, uh, and the FBN was involved with the case as well, but there was a constant conflict between the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the New York City Narcotics Bureau. They were constantly at odds with one another, and they didn't like one another. So uh, Mulderig, here played by Hickman, uh, it's set up in the first scene that where we see him that he and the Doyle and Russo character are at odds. Doyle, of course, would spend all night at a bar. This one, um, 
is a place called Moochie's. It's no longer there, but it was on the South Seaport uh, where the Fisherman's Wharf is in New York. And Doyle would generally stay out all night drinking, sleep on the bar, and then get up the next morning and go back to surveillance work. One of the things we're doing, of course, is trying to give you a different view of New York. All of the aspects of New York, high and low. Really, in, in many ways, I felt this was a kind of uh, crude poem to the city. And in this particular sequence, we see something that Doyle was fond of doing, which was following girls home that he would see. In that case, a girl with red boots on a bicycle, and he just follow her and he would um, arrest them. Actually, he would arrest them for no reason, mockingly, but it was really his way of coming on to them and he'd take them home with him. And in the morning, his wake-up call always came from Cloudy, uh, who would make sure that he was up on time and ready to go to work. Popeye! What? Me, Cloudy, open the door. Deegan went under departmental charges toward the end of his career. He was brought up on charges by the police commission for many serious violations. Uh, and after 19 years in the department, he was forced into retirement. But most of the charges were, uh, well, all of the charges, I would say, were, were overblown because they just resented his fame. He and uh, Grasso were the most famous cops in New York during the time of the French Connection case. And the higher-ups resented that and looked for every infraction they could find and brought charges against them. And basically, they beat the charges, but they had to retire. In this case, we see that the way uh, Doyle lives is like an unmade bed. And he is, in fact, handcuffed to his own bed with his own handcuffs by the girl that he picked up on the bike last night. And so uh, Russo has to get him out of another scrape, another fine mess. Where's the keys? This was my impression of what I would see on a daily basis of how Egan and Grasso got ready to go to work. The morning would usually start in this way, with Eddie hungover and having had casual sex the night before, and Grasso already shaved and ready to go. And that's why they were an interesting and a marvelous combination. And that's what intrigued me. One guy who was an unmade bed, but brilliant, a brilliant deductive detective, and the other guy who was totally together and kept his partner on the straight and narrow. He knew that Doyle was a kind of genius, a street genius, and he knew that he was responsible for keeping Doyle on his game. That was his role. What do we need those bricks for? Because our department's got about 908 bucks to make buys. And they can get all they want from Uncle Sap. Hello. He's yours, darling. Mike, take a look at this. Oh, 
Hackman was more self-destructive and vulnerable, even though he looked to be such a powerful and uh, all-controlling personality. This is a police junkyard where they have impounded cars. And this was part of the operation that Charnier was conducting. They would buy various cars from the police department that had been uh, abandoned or uh, taken, you know, in parking violations. They would buy these cars and ship them ostensibly over to uh, Marseille to be used as scrap metal in his shipbuilding business. Uh, but really what they were doing uh, was loading those cars up with the money that was being transferred to them from New York in return for the narcotics. So they would bring the narcotics over in a car like the Lincoln and send the money back in a so-called junker car like the one that they're bidding on right now. 12 over here, 12. Can I get 14? Can I get 14? 14. 14 over here. How about 16? Can I hear 16? 16? 16. 18. 18 over there, right. How about 20? Can I get 20? 20. Chagnier's wife goes along with him, and she's a camera bug, but that's all. Uh, she would simply go along with him because she was interested in American, um, you know, in all things American. My guess is she had no idea what was going on with her husband, but he treated her so well, and it was a vacation for her and he was doing business, while Doyle and Russo had gotten their wiretaps on Sal and Angie Boca and were listening in to everything that the Bocas were talking about and taking notes on it and trying to put together a case. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going to find the pizza joint open. Sal, yeah. don't forget anchovies. <laughs> and then one day during that wiretap surveillance, Russo came in and saw that Doyle was particularly excited, and what was going on was they heard a foreign voice, a French voice, talking to Sal. And this seemed to put together a lot of things that they heard in the street, that a big shipment was coming in from Marseille, France, and that maybe Sal was involved with it. And so they continued to put Sal under uh, surveillance. They followed him uh, from Brooklyn into Manhattan and they would try to get a sense of what his activities were and where he went and who he saw. And as you can see here, the conflict is building between Mulderig, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics agent, and Doyle and Russo from the Narcotics Bureau. It was a constant running battle between them during the making of this case. He's getting too far ahead. You're going to lose him. We did this scene, which involves uh, the surveillance car losing Boca's car in heavy traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. We set up a traffic jam on the Brooklyn Bridge without any permission or permits whatsoever. We just got a bunch of our friends and off-duty police officers to park there and block the Brooklyn Bridge and stage a traffic jam. And uh, it took about 15, 20 minutes to shoot the scene. And uh, of course, we had messed up traffic for that long. And police helicopters came over and raided us and said, what the hell are you guys doing here? This sequence shows how other members of the unit were all involved with 
Doyle and Russo and Mulderig surveilling Sal Boca as he was on his way in Manhattan to meet someone or do something. And Sal became conscious of the fact that he was under surveillance. He would often look right into the eyes of the person following him and just let the guy know that I know who you are and what you're doing. And they conducted their affairs quite openly in that way. This sequence is what is known as a triangular surveillance. One agent gets burned and goes up and takes another position while another agent appears and follows the guy for as long as he can until he gets burned. And so here's Doyle and across the street is Mulderig, both following Boca, and up ahead of Mulderig now is the repositioned Russo who was burned originally when Boca first spotted him. So they're constantly trading places in following uh, Boca and trying not to get burned, but they in fact do get burned. He knows they're there. None of these shots were really set up with any extras or there's no lights on the street. It's all just handheld cameras with actual New York citizens in the shot, not knowing at all what we were doing. This scene in this hotel is actually what happened. One day, while following Boca, Russo ran right into Charnier and Nicoli, who are now in America and in Boca's company. And now they put them together. The suspected narcotics dealer from France and the seemingly small-time operator from Brooklyn. And they were meeting at the Roosevelt Hotel, and then Charnier and Nicoli are going on a little walking tour of New York, and the triangular surveillance breaks up into Doyle and Russo following the two Frenchmen, who they called Frog One and Frog Two, and Mulderig follows Sal. I set up all this before we shot it, and I would stage it, and then just send the actors out there, and again, not tell Ricky Bravo, the cameraman, what was gonna happen, where anybody was gonna go, or what they were gonna do, and it was up to him to try and find the scene, which is what made this documentary technique. It was not pre-staged. I staged it without the camera crew, and then I let the camera crew go and find the action, as though it was real. And so now you have another scene from the actual case where Doyle and Russo are on stakeout outside a fancy heated restaurant on the coldest day in, in New York. You can see it's extremely cold here. And you see that is a gentleman. He's also a gourmet and he sends the wine back and Hackman's standing outside freezing watching him while they're having an elaborate multi-course French lunch complete with several wines and dessert and coffee 
and Hackman's across the street just freezing, waiting for them to come out so he can keep following them. And this was what happened day after day on the case. This was my attempt to show that sometimes the case involved what seemed to be nothing but hours of boredom, just waiting for people to emerge and then follow them and hope that they'd lead you to something criminal so you could make an arrest. This is the contrast between the cop and the suspect. And as you can see, the bad guy eats better than the good guy. After every shot, I mean, it doesn't look as cold as it was, but this was the coldest day in New York. And after each shot that we made outside, I had to take the crew inside. They'd go inside that shoe store or into the other stores on the street and just try and warm up because it was freezing cold through the entire shooting of the film, which took place between November and February 1971. They finish their meal, and Russo follows Nicoli, and Doyle follows Charnier to the Westbury Hotel, where Charnier has checked in. And as you can see, Charnier is well-dressed. He's in a well-appointed hotel. He's an altogether charming and graceful person. And the other fellow is, seems like a thug, the cop. This was one shot in this lobby that picked up all the various elements without a cut. Charnier arriving, getting his keys, getting his messages, and then with one shot, Doyle coming over, seeing that he probably got off on the sixth floor and uh, asking the desk clerk if he could give him any help as to identifying who that man with the goatee was. I never did more than one or two takes. Rarely did we ever have to do three takes on anything. The film was shot fast. The actors understood what they were supposed to do and did it. The camera crew followed the action like they were on a documentary. All the movement here is done from a wheelchair. We didn't have dolly tracks. We used to push Ricky Bravo around on a wheelchair. So even though the movement is rather smooth, it's not totally smooth. It has more of what I call an induced documentary feel. Now that they had the French guys in the city, they remained on stakeout all day and all night for weeks, waiting to see what Charnier was gonna do while he was here. Pretty sure that one's a frog. He made me to. The budget of the film was a million and a half dollars, and it went about $300,000 over. And uh, that was a lot of money in those days. I mean, it wasn't a high-budgeted film, but neither was it a low-budgeted film in those days. So if you went over 300000 as we did, it was uh, a problem. 
and the studio would yell at you every day, but they knew we had encountered a lot of problems, and they were very supportive. But today, I mean, you couldn't make this film for any less than 20 times what it cost. We had a budget, actually, of $3 million, and they told us a million and a half. That's all they had. And we agreed to do it for a million and a half, knowing that we couldn't. We just wanted to get the picture made. This is the actual test, the police test, to determine whether that's actually heroin or not. And in this shot, that is, in fact, heroin, uncut heroin from a brick of heroin. It's just broken up into a little pile there. The temperature of a little bit of volume of the heroin mixed with mercury determines its actual value. And so that thermometer which has been dipped into the heroin is then heated to a degree that shows that it is in fact pure uncut heroin. It's a police test to determine whether it's heroin or sugar or a fake substance. And in this scene, the man with the cigar is the guy who is actually paying to bring this heroin into the country. He's the middleman. And the man who did the test for him is his expert. He's a streetwise guy, possibly an ex-cop, who knew how to make the test for heroin. And he's okayed it here. And we see that he is actually Sal Boca's banker. He's a guy called Joel Weinstock, who is a composite figure, actually. There were a number of these people who were importing the heroin into New York. But Weinstock was buying the heroin for a half a million dollars and its street value was about 32 million once it had been cut and distributed. So Weinstock is a very cautious uh, money launderer and narcotics broker, and Sal is sort of his leg man who works on commission. Sal is the guy that brought him this deal, and Sal is the guy who is in daily contact with Charnier. And he's now urging Weinstock not to be cautious but to go ahead and make the transfer of the money for the heroin because the Frenchmen are now beginning to feel, as Sal does, that they're under surveillance. Move cautiously. You'll never be sorry. Look, I've been damn careful up to now. This is why your phone lines are tapped and the feds are calling all over you like fleas. Ah. Look, I'm telling you, he'll take the deal somewhere else. Well, let him take his 60 kilos of heroin someplace else and find out how easy it is to put together a half a million in cash. You wouldn't find there's any hurry to do this kind of business. The stuff is here. We can make the switch in an hour. Look, Weinstock, I'm telling you, he'll split if we don't move. This guy's got him like that. He's everything they say he is. What about you, Sal? Are you everything they say you are? So for days heading into weeks, in various shifts, the narcotics detectives would follow Charnier around New York to see what he was doing. And this actually happened in the case. One morning, Doyle showed up to be on stakeout, and Charnier walked right out of the hotel at that moment. 
and Doyle saw that the other agents on duty weren't even paying attention. They were talking in doorways while Charnier had walked out of the building with nobody on him. So Doyle started to follow him down Madison Avenue. He saw Mulderig on the telephone, oblivious to the fact that the man that they had under surveillance was out there on his own now. This is how it actually happened in the actual case. The interesting thing is that as streetwise as Doyle was, Charnier was even more so. This is Doyle's town. But Charnier, who was the most cautious character you can imagine, never went anywhere without being totally conscious of his surroundings and if someone was tailing him. And so he begins to get the sense early on that he's being followed and he decides to lead his pursuer on a sort of wild goose chase. Charnier was an absolute master of deception. And finding a place to hide and then slipping away before anyone was conscious of it often in broad daylight. This sequence was shot in continuity, of course, to maintain the attitudes that were necessary on the part of Doyle, and to give the actors a sense of where and how this little foot chase was progressing. Chanier would go into a little flower shop like he was buying flowers for somebody. Maybe he was, and then he'd disappear into the crowd, and Doyle would be out there confused and looking for him and <laughs> trying to chase him down with a cordon of street cops all over the place just waiting to be called into action, and nobody with any idea of what happened to Chanier, who led Doyle down into the New York City subway system. What he would do in a case like this is go down one subway entrance, and after Doyle committed himself that he was going to follow, he'd go back up into the street using another exit. This is one of the sequences that attracted me to want to make the film. A cat and mouse, a wordless cat and mouse between two worthy adversaries taking place amid normal street life in the middle of Manhattan. And one guy's a narcotics cop and the other guy is bringing $32 million worth of heroin into the country and all of the people around them who are getting on the subway are oblivious to this drama that's taking place right in their midst. We didn't have a permit to shoot this scene. We just went down there with a small crew put Ricky Bravo in a wheelchair and then pushed the wheelchair up until the point where Hackman had to get on the train and Ricky would get off the wheelchair and go in and follow him. We used this instead of dolly track. And in this scene, uh, it becomes obvious early on that Chanier is aware of the fact 
that he's being followed by Doyle. He sees him in that mirror. He knows he's there. Doyle didn't particularly care. He was just going to follow him now. They were both committed to a sort of end game. It was right out in the open now. The pursued knew who his pursuer was, but they didn't say a word about it or acknowledge one another at all until the final moments of it. In this moment, Doyle is calling the Westbury Hotel where Muldrig is supposed to be on surveillance inside, and Muldrig's not even aware that Chanier has left the hotel. Hello. This is Doyle. I'm sitting on Frog One. Yeah, I know that. Got the Westbury covered like a tent. The Westbury, my ass. I got him on the shuttle at Grand Central. Now, what the hell's going on up there? I make him come out of the hotel. He was free as a bird. He went on soul awake. What the hell are you talking about? I had the New York City Police Department yeah, well, uh, embodied by Egan and Grasso and all of their cohorts, and so they went in and just made it possible for me to do shots like this. They simply took over and made sure that nobody hassled the set. The set here being Grand Central, the Grand Central Station shuttle. Here we see Chanier thinking over his next move, wondering what the detective's gonna do. Detective not knowing where, Chanier is about to lead him. Turns out, of course, it's all a wild goose chase and that Chanier was just playing a game with the cops. He enjoyed it. It was the most dangerous game. This is another shot off a wheelchair by Ricky Bravo, used as a dolly, because we didn't lay dolly track. We didn't have the time to lay down track so the camera could move more smoothly. We just got in and got out. This was the actual cat and mouse, as it was described to me by Eddie Egan, that led him to lose Charnier on this particular day. I love this move. And this is the final moment of the sequence where Charnier acknowledges that the detective is just a, just a schmuck. The detective is, is a guy who doesn't know how to uh, function in his own city, and Charnier gives him the wave and has the upper hand and tells him, I know you're out there. I know who you are and what you're doing, and you're not going to stop me. Meanwhile, Russo was following Sal Boca, and one day Sal bought a ticket on the Eastern Shuttle out of LaGuardia Airport to Washington, D.C. The character who's playing this detective is Sonny Grasso, the character being played by Roy Scheider. Well, in this moment, Chanier decided to meet Boca out of town, and the closest they could get to without being followed too closely, they thought, 
was to take the one-hour shuttle flight from LaGuardia to Washington, D.C., where they just met out in the park opposite the Congress. I felt it was particularly ironic that they would be discussing this big heroin deal right in front of the United States Congress. But they were, in fact, being followed, but nobody could hear what they were saying. But what is happening here is that Charnier is getting impatient. He wants to close the deal, and Boca is kind of vamping because his buyer, Weinstock, his banker, doesn't want to close the deal yet. He, he suspects entrapment. And Chanier tells him he better get this thing done or it's over this week. And of course, they're both under surveillance by the other narcotics detective played by Sonny Grasso. On the Eastern shuttle back to LaGuardia, Chagnier tells his associate, Nicoli, that uh, they've got to wrap this thing up. They're on a timetable. The longer they delay, the more they're in danger of being discovered by the police. Cops are all over the place, especially one particular cop who followed him on the subway, he tells Nicoli. And Nicoli says, well, let me take care of him, meaning let me take that cop out. And Charnier says, it doesn't matter. They know about our operation. There'll be others. And Nicoli says, what's the difference? We'll be out of here in a day or two. In this scene now, the scene of a very severe auto accident where one of the drivers was using heroin and a set of heroin works were found on him. Members of the Narcotics Bureau, along with Mulderig, come out to investigate the scene. This scene has nothing to do with the French Connection case itself, but it's the background, the investigation of this fatal accident, during which Doyle argues to remain on special assignment and follow the Frenchman and Boca and Simonson and Mulderig argued that they're going nowhere, nothing's going to happen, all the facilities of the department are being used, uh, wasted, and Mulderig throws in the fact that on one of Doyle's other hunches, one of their own detectives had been killed, and that Doyle had made a fatal mistake, and this one might be another fatal mistake. And Simonson buys that argument and takes him off special assignment and Doyle goes home that afternoon to just sleep it off and then go back on his regular assignment, leaving the French Connection case to somebody else. But now you have to remember that Nicoli the hitman is looking to take Doyle out of this case, not knowing that he's already out of it, officially. And he decides to try and assassinate him on his own grounds. And this is the scene that kicks off the chase. It starts at Doyle's own apartment building. And then it becomes a chase of a car 
chasing a train. I was very conscious of the fact that there was a, a great cop movie made a couple of years before called Bullet, with a wonderful chase, two cars in the streets of San Francisco. And I didn't want to do two cars through the streets of New York. So I racked my brain as to what it might be to be a little different. And along with the producer, Phil D'Antoni, just walking around the city, we came up with the idea of a car chasing a train. And that's what we set up. It wasn't possible for a car going at high speed to chase an elevated train at its maximum speed. And this is the setup for that chase that has become a very celebrated uh, chase. And I think the um, thing that makes it most interesting and unusual is that it's not two cars. It's a car chasing a train. The other thing to remember about this chase is that the old admonition by F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great American writer, that action is character. What a person does and how they do it is what and who they are. And this chase embodies the character of Popeye Doyle. He is totally obsessive. He will go through any obstacle to get his man and to break a case. He does not care if he endangers innocent lives. He's not aware of innocent life anywhere. He's running down a street up into a subway station, holding his gun out, holding his policeman special. And if necessary, he'll shoot it out with this guy right there on an elevated platform with innocent people around. And again, this foot chase results in the cat and mouse in which Nicoly now, eluding Doyle, is able to get on an elevated train, leaving Doyle with no immediate means of transportation himself. Doyle is contemplating running across the third rail, but it's too late. He knows he can't get over there in time to board that train and arrest Nicoly. And now Nicoly, who was the pursuer and the assassin, is now the pursued. But seemingly he's safe. He's on this elevated train that's going back in another direction. And so Doyle has to run down into the street and confiscate a car and try to chase the elevated train with somebody's car that he's taken just off the street. There was a similar chase in the French Connection case but it didn't take place in the way that this one did. I felt that we needed a set piece, you know, a real blast out chase at the center of the picture to relieve the audience's frustrations at all this surveillance that was leading nowhere. And so I devised this particular chase that was a kind of an impression of what actually happened. This is, of course, more exciting because it's a movie. We choreographed the car. There were a few stunt cars involved, but not many. And every time there was supposed to be a near miss with a stunt car, it resulted in a crash. So we had a constantly 
repair the car that Hackman was in because it was getting beat up by the stunt cars who were missing their marks. Meanwhile, there were other civilian cars on the streets that had no idea of what we were doing. This is Hackman driving. He drove a lot of the chase himself. He's not being towed or pulled, he's driving. This was supposed to be a near miss coming up here. And um, the car was supposed to, uh, while chasing under the elevated tracks, have a clear path and just have some near misses with cars going in the opposite direction. But the cars, as I said, would miss their marks and they smack up Hackman's car. So it finally winds up like a piece of junk when it gets to the end of the chase. Meanwhile, Nicoli is trying to attract the motorman's attention to have the motorman be sure he doesn't stop at the next station, but blows through right through to the end of the line. The motorman tells him he has to stop at the next station, but Nicoli's gun says that he won't. The motorman, of course, is a man with a weak heart, especially after being hijacked like that. And Hackman goes to the next station, expecting that he's beaten the train to 25th Avenue, but the train blows right by the station. We found out that, of course, that car could do 80 or 90 miles an hour, and the top speed of an elevated train then was 50 miles an hour. So that made it technically possible to do something like this. A car going flat out at 90 miles an hour on the street could catch a train that was going flat out at 50. This shot was made with no control whatever and no stunt people. There's a stunt car that inadvertently hits our car, wasn't supposed to. So we had to stop and get Hackman's car ready to get back on the road. It was unintentional. All of the other stunt near misses turned into actual hits. But this shot where you go at top speed like this with the camera on the bumper of Hackman's car was done at 90 mile an hour speeds with no control, with civilian cars on the street, not stuntmen. And so all he had was what we call a gumball on top of his car, which you can't see from this perspective, a police gumball that was a siren. And so we had our siren on. I was operating in the car, and another car was mounted on the bumper of Hackman's car, and this is actual traffic. These are cars that have no idea a guy's coming at them at 90 miles an hour. I had no reservations about doing it then because I was a callow, heedless youth, but I wouldn't do anything like this now. The actual shot of the woman with the baby carriage was very easy to do, and it was made with, you know, just movie magic and a knowledge of cutting. We weren't really driving at her that fast. We were zooming at her that fast from a stationary camera. At this moment, the operator, the motorman, 
has his heart attack and he's losing control of the train, which is going to cause the train to crash with another train against another train that's parked up ahead. Nicoli is now being menaced by a group of passengers and one of the conductors and the motorman has his heart attack and the trains are about to crash. And this is going to be the end of the line for Nicoli. The train is now out of control. The car sees that he's gaining on the train. The passengers are aware that there's a madman with a gun on the train and they're trying to get off. Hackman's car looks like it's ready for the junk factory. The way I made those trains crash, they wouldn't allow us to actually crash two elevated trains. I put the camera very close to one train and backed away from it as quickly as we could and undercranked the shot uh, so that it appears to be a crash, but it's actually shot in backward motion. The finale, of course, is Hackman's car arrives at the scene shortly after the crash, and Nicoli, who's all shook up by what has happened and has lost his weapon, is now a trapped animal in a cage. And so the hunter is now really the hunted, and he's trapped, and he finally is able to make his way seemingly out into freedom. But the obsessiveness of Doyle has kicked in, and Doyle, who was the hunted, is now the hunter. There were a lot of the cops who worked on the picture that objected to this, having a cop shoot a suspect in the back. But I was secure in my conviction that that's exactly what Eddie Egan would have done. And Eddie was on the set while all of this was being shot. Marcel Bazoufi did his own body fall down those stairs. Now there's a lot of pressure on those who are remaining in this caper. They're getting a little edgy, and they've decided now to make the switch, to drive the narcotics in the car where it's going to be picked up, and the transfer of the narcotics for the cash is going to be made. But meanwhile, the policemen remained on surveillance, and neither side knew at this particular point where this thing was going to end up but they were all so committed to the actions that they had set in motion that they just went ahead the smugglers knowing that the cops were watching them at all times and that one of the smugglers had actually been shot to death by a cop Doyle and Russo got back on the case after it became apparent from undercover surveillance uh, and tips by informants that the deal was imminent. And so Doyle and Russo were the only guys familiar with all the players so that they were put back on the case for a limited amount of time. So there was now pressure on all sides to wrap the thing up. 
Where's the guy? Get my cars in the back. They were face to face, looking at each other. Each side knew who the other guy was, and it was a kind of a end game that they each had to play out because each side had the feeling that they were superior to the other side, that the cops were stupid, and the cops felt that there was no way that these French guys were going to be able to pull this thing off with a cordon of all these cops hanging around them at all times. This next sequence is, again, from the actual case, where the Lincoln was followed to a remote location in downtown New York, and the police were very close behind, and Sal drove the Lincoln down to an area in lower Manhattan where he just left it on the street. Now, remember, at this time, the cops did not know if anything, in fact, was in that Lincoln. Doyle suspected that the Lincoln was dirty, but Sal drove it down to a street in Lower Manhattan, parked it, and his wife picked him up, and he drove back to Brooklyn. While Doyle and Russo decided to stay and watch that car all night if they had to, or as long as they had to, because Doyle had the hunch again that somebody was going to come along and claim that car, and that the car was dirty, as he put it. What was supposed to happen here is that a transfer was supposed to be made. The car was supposed to be picked up by Weinstock's men, where the narcotics would have been removed, and they would have placed the money in another car, that was bought at auction, as we've seen, and the money would be shipped back to Charnier's shipyard in a car that was sold for scrap metal. But the people who were to claim the Lincoln were not so quick to do it because they knew that the car was now under surveillance constantly. What happened after several nights of this was that one night, a group of car thieves kept going around, circling the car, because they wanted to hit it for spare parts. These car thieves knew nothing about what was in that car or what was going on between the police surveillance and that car. They didn't even know there was a surveillance. They were just cruising around, and here they saw this beautiful, fully equipped Lincoln sedan, and they decided that they were safe here. They didn't see anybody around, and it was 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and when they came around after three times circling the car, they decided to get out and to hit it for spare parts, not knowing that they were hitting a vehicle that was concealing $32 million worth of uncut heroin.
This again was a sequence from the actual case where at the time that Doyle and the others noticed that this was the third time around for the people in the little white car cruising the Lincoln, they decided that these were the guys who were there to make the switch and they were gonna arrest them if the switch was made. And sure enough, five guys got out of the little white car with all kinds of equipment to take the car apart and cannibalize it for parts, at which point they were all surrounded by the New York City Police Department. All right, let's hit them. I took the highlights of the case that I felt were the strongest. Obviously, the case took place over a period of almost two years, and the movie runs an hour and 40 minutes, so you couldn't tell every story that took place in those two years, but this is an impression of what did take place and of the personalities involved. And so, now they've got these car thieves who really had no idea that they were involved with a smuggling operation. And Doyle decides, however, that that car is still hot. There's something in that car, and he decides to have it taken down to the police garage and examined. And so the car is now the property of the New York City Police Department. Are you bullshitting me? That car's dirty. But take it in and tear it apart. We shot it in 10 years later than the case took place. I would never have done it, period, because it would just have cost too much money to recreate uh, the old automobiles on the street and everything else that had to be 1962. And we shot the film in 71, 70 and 71. The guy who's supervising this operation on the right there, his name is Irving Abrams, and he is the guy who pulled the actual car apart in this way at the police garage when they brought it in. He's not an actor. He is the mechanic for the New York Police Department who um, pulled this car apart in this fashion looking for whatever they thought was in there. They pulled it apart, as you can see, from stem to stern. They looked everywhere. And at a certain point, they started to give up because they weren't finding anything. This is all solid. This was the actual New York City police garage. And it was the actual mechanic who did this work in the case. And he took us through step by step the way he tore it apart originally. And he reached a point where he thought he could not find anything. But Doyle was convinced that there was something in that car, that the car was dirty. 
and Irv says to him, you find it, I can't. Well, you find it, I can't. And then, after hours of this, Devereaux and his translator come down to the police garage because they've heard that the car, Charnier has told them that the car has been impounded and is being held in, in the big police garage at the foot of Manhattan, and they're coming back now to claim the car. And they're saying, Mr. Devereaux parked it on the street there and it was stolen, and they understand it's now in police custody and they want it back. The police officer on duty there is another actual cop, Randy Jurgensen, who was involved in the actual case. And he is telling them that he doesn't understand how they could have lost the car in that way. What he's really doing is vamping for time. He's saying, uh, what were you doing down there? Why would you park your car in such a dangerous neighborhood? And they're trying to explain that they were making a documentary and the car belongs to them, and if they don't get it back, they'll depict this incident in the documentary. And both sides are just sort of jiving one another. After hours, if not days, of this, Rousseau gets the idea to ask how much the car weighed when it came into the country. Irv looks at the manifest and determines that the car weighs 125 pounds more than it did when it came out of the factory, which meant that it was loaded with 125 pounds of something back in France because it's in New York now, 125 pounds heavier than it was when it left the factory. It's 120 pounds overweight. And when it was booked into Marseille, it was 4795. That's still 120 pounds overweight. Jimmy's got to be right. Listen, I ripped everything out of there except the rocker panels. Come on, Irv, what the hell is that? He realized that the only place that he hadn't examined were those rocker panels at the sides of the car. And that, in fact, is the way the French Connection heroin got into the United States, loaded in these various colored packages in the rocker panels of the Lincoln. The car was put back together and returned to Devereaux. Now, in screen time, that happens very quickly. Four hours, we suggest. But in actual fact, it might have taken much longer. But they were able to tear it apart and put it together in a manner that looked like top condition to Devereaux. And the others involved with the smuggling operation because this garage was fully equipped. They could have manufactured. This garage goes on for miles, and they could manufacture a car there. They had every imaginable spare part to replace a car that had been pulled apart as this one had. A lot of people have questioned this sequence, but this is exactly how it happened. The car was pulled apart and put back together with the heroin intact. 
and given back to Devereaux. But by now, Devereaux is spooked. He wants to get out of this. He doesn't know what's in that car, but he knows he's now dealing with the police, and he's getting the hell out of town. He's getting out of Dodge. And Charnier's trying to keep him calm and tell him he needs one more favor from him. Now that he's got the car back in the garage of the hotel, he needs another favor. He needs to get Devereaux to drive the car to the place on Ward's Island where they're gonna make the switch, the narcotics for the money. But Devereaux wants no part of it, even though he's being threatened now by Charnier. And Charnier's saying, you're an accomplice. You, you better stay involved with this or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And Devereaux says, I'm an accomplice to what? I don't know anything about what you're doing. I don't want any more money from you. I don't want to be involved in this. And Charnier is finally left alone to make the transfer of the car for the money himself which is something he really doesn't like to do. He doesn't want to get his own hands dirty, but there's no other way. Well. Ward's Island, you will remember, is where Sal Boca's brother uh, was working as a garbage department trainee. And he's the guy that found the place in an abandoned old factory where they could bring the Lincoln out, unload it, make the test to make sure it was actual heroin, and um, give Charnier the money, the $500,000 that was then going to be shipped back in one of the junker cars that Charnier bought at a police auction that was headed back to Marseille. At this particular point, the audience is not aware. You kind of get a sense that the police surveillance is still going on, but you do see that Charnier is able to drive to this point and he's not being followed. But here, all the parties involved with the transfer of the drugs for the money are meeting in this abandoned warehouse on Ward's Island to make the transfer. And now you see they go right for the rocker panels because they know that's where the heroin has been hidden. And they're going to take one package of it, arbitrarily make a test. And if the test shows that this is in fact heroin and not sugar or some heroin substitute, then the money will be transferred. And so Joel Weinstock's chemist, so to speak, conducts a field test right out there. And this field test, that's actual heroin, again, from the police property clerk's office. And that's actually the chemical substance that's added to the heroin. And if it turns purple, that determines that it is, in fact, heroin. If it turns any other color, it isn't heroin. I hope your television sets are color corrected because the color of that little mixture in the uncut heroin is supposed to be purple, and it is, in fact, heroin. So now they take the rest of it, and they're going to store it inside of a panel that's concealed in this warehouse until there's a, a time when they consider it safe to put it out in the street, get it cut, 
and distributed. And there's $500,000 there waiting for Mr. Charnier that's going into, if you'll remember, this car that was numbered 42399 at the police auction. And the money is going into the rocker panels on its way back to Marseille in a junk car that's to be used as scrap metal. But of course, it will be unloaded in Marseille. The rocker panels will be unloaded there. And that's the way the French connection caper was pulled off. This is the way they did it for years. But as you'll see when we get to the end of the film, a lot of strange things happened before it was brought to a conclusion. So Chagnier and Sal are now heading back into the city, their business dealings over, and as they head out over the Wards Island Bridge, there's the police cordon waiting for them, with Mr. Doyle in the lead, who of course gives Mr. Chagnier the same wave that Chagnier gave him on the subway. And now the game is really into its final end game position. Boca and Chagnier are heading back to the place where the transfer was made, but they're now all trapped. There's no other way off this island. All of the people who are playing the gangsters in this scene and the narcotics dealers, all of these are off-duty police officers that worked the case. Chagnier went a different direction than the rest of them who went back to the warehouse where the narcotics were. Charnier ran off to another building on the island that was a decayed building. And Doyle took off after him. He was, he was the prize for Doyle. The rest of them went after all the others who were involved in the case. What's very interesting, as you'll see by the end titles, Charnier was never caught. There was a 50-police cordon around Charnier at all times, and he still got out of the country alive, and he died peacefully in Corsica about 10 years ago. It turns out that he had fought side by side with Charles de Gaulle in the resistance. Even though they knew where he was back in France, the French authorities did not grant extradition on Chagnier. He died peacefully at home. This was actually the bakery of a hospital building on this island, a mental institution actually, where the finale is going to take place. The police get involved with a shootout with the New York smugglers. 
tear gas is brought out, and the smugglers all but Sal Boca surrender. Sal's going to try and run it out. The real Sal Boca was not killed in this way. Sal was captured in this way and put into, into jail. He was arrested and did almost no time. He got back out on the street shortly after, as you'll see. What I'm suggesting, of course, in saying this, and I'm only suggesting it, Charnier, who got out of the country, Sal and the others who did very little time, I'm suggesting that there were payoffs involved at the highest levels of law enforcement. There was no way that Charnier could escape this cordon that was around him, and that there was no way that Sal Boca was not going to do major jail time for what he did. But you'll see the verdicts come up shortly and see what actually happened. Eddie Egan told me, by the way, that how much he hated the FBN character, Mulderig, we call him. He hated him to the extent that if he ever had the opportunity, he told me, he would have killed the son of a bitch. And so I decided that the dramatic way to end the film, even though it was not what happened in the actual case, was that Doyle would accidentally shoot and kill Mulderig in an echo of what had happened in an earlier case that Mulderig referred to, where another New York City cop was killed as a result of one of Doyle's hunches. And so at the end of our story, Doyle has killed his own man, so to speak, the FBN agent Mulderig. And Chagnier's still in the building, and Doyle couldn't care less about Muldrig. He knows, as he says, that the son of a bitch is still in this building. And he's going to get him. So the film ends with Doyle running down a dark corridor of a wrecked building looking for a shadow. He's gone so over the top at this point because the film is ultimately about his obsession that he's firing at shadows and the film ends with a gunshot. And the audience is unaware of who was shot. No one was shot. As you see, Weinstock's case was dismissed. Angie Boca was, had a suspended sentence. Sal's brother, Lou, sentence reduced. He's out of prison. Devereaux, the Angelvan character, is the only one who did time in this case, four years in a federal penitentiary. And as you can see, Alan Charnier was never caught. He was living back in France and died just a few years ago. Doyle and Russo were transferred out of the Narcotics Bureau and reassigned and eventually went interdepartmental investigations themselves. This was Don Ellis's first score for a movie, Owen Roisman's first feature as a director of photography. I had an absolutely wonderful crew, who, uh, many of whom I worked with a number of times again. Ricky Bravo, the camera operator, Bill Hickman, the stuntman, Fat Thomas, who was a New York bookmaker, was my location consultant. And finally, 
as with most films that have a shelf life and live on after they're created, the cast becomes inseparable from their roles.